You're listening to the Language Leaders Podcast. Hi, my name's Alex Asher. I'm the CEO of LearnCube and the host of Language Leaders Live. In this show, we talk to extraordinary people that are in the language space and really know where things are heading. So I'm going to be introducing you to an exceptional entrepreneur. His name is Ray Blakeney. He has multiple businesses, but the one that has been his foundation story is LiveLingua. This was his first major business, started in 2008, and he recently sold it in 2023. We're going to be talking with Ray about his journey. We're going to be talking about where the language sector is going, AI. We're going to be talking about his own journey and and how he views business and how he gets the most out of life too. So before we even get into what LiveLingua is about is you recently sold your online language business called LiveLingua. What was that journey like to go from zero to selling your business? I think I'll go with the the meme everybody's always seen on Facebook of what you expect the journey to be like and what the journey really is like and, you know, the up and squiggly lines and all of that. And absolutely, that was it for us. Just to give credit where credit's due, I started LiveLingua with my wife. So both of us yeah. built the company and grew it from there. It had a lot of ups and downs, but it in the beginning, we actually started as a lifestyle business and we never actually expected it to get as big as it was. We were like, yeah. we're one of the only top five that has had no VC backing behind it, right? Like everybody else had money and we didn't, we just yeah. kind of did it through attrition. But it allowed us to travel the world. Three months out of the year, we would travel back before we had a kid. And I really, really enjoyed it. The process, the learning. I knew nothing about online business when I launched it. It wasn't that I was, you know, I had done 20 or 30 online businesses before and I came across this. This was my first significant online business that I launched. And wow, it worked out. Totally did. And I think we need to then go to that origin story. So, okay. One of the great things that you answered there is kind of where you got to and how it was that non- yeah, a very squiggly line. But let's go back then to, hey, I didn't even think I was going to start an online business. Let's start there. So it's an interesting story. I'll go all the way back to my childhood. When I was, I grew up in Turkey. My dad, my mom's from the Philippines. I was born there. I moved to Turkey when I was very young, but my dad's from the United States. I went to school there at the international school. And I remember distinctly when I was 10 or 11 years old, there was a girl in my class whose name was Miriam, who I just reconnected with about six months ago for the first time after like 20, 25 years. And she would, she would always say, Ray, you're going to be an entrepreneur one day. Just apparently something about me gave her that vibe. And I always looked at her like she was crazy. I have no idea what you're talking about. I was a computer geek. I liked playing computer games. So I wanted to make computer games when I was older. So the whole entrepreneur thing wasn't even on my radar. So went to college, studied computer engineering. Did not go into computer games because I learned very on at computer engineering that making them and playing them are two totally different things and not close to as fun with each other. So I did the more corporate route. Decided something was missing, quit my job, joined the Peace Corps. And so I went from like a high paid computer engineering job to a few hundred dollar a month job working as a volunteer with indigenous communities in Southern Mexico. Met my wife and didn't really want to go back to the US. And we decided, hey, why don't we launch a business? Because, you know, you're a teacher and I know nothing about business. So that's obviously a logic, logical (laughs) next step. And that's actually how I became an entrepreneur. And then the online, we started a brick, a chain, what ended up being a small chain of brick and mortar language school. She was a language teacher. That evolved into Live Wing after about two years, the online school. And oops, we accidentally became entrepreneurs. And it's been, wow, 16, 17 years. And I've launched close to 20 companies since then. So does that feel, now looking back, it's like, oh, yeah, I was always going to be entrepreneur. Or do you think kind of looking back, actually, this was like a Swiss cheese thing, that if it didn't have lined up just as it did, maybe I'll be building computer games. That's it. I would probably be in corporate America as a computer programmer doing just fine. 
and I use the word fine in, in air quotes for those who are listening and not watching, I would be just fine, which is how most people are. And trust me, there are days in entrepreneurship where I envy most people because it's, it's not for the faint of heart to be an entrepreneur, but most of the last 15, well, 17 years, I feel old just saying it, of being an entrepreneur, I wouldn't trade it. I love most of what I do. I love building businesses. I love talking to other entrepreneurs, the people I've met and the teams and the, the opportunities has given me to speak and all of that. I wouldn't change it, even in the downtimes. Do you feel that sometimes, I know that I feel this sometimes, the good thing is the longer you're an entrepreneur, the more of the ups and downs you feel. And the more that you know that if you're in a down, the ups probably around the corner as well. I feel like I, that gives me a lot of comfort. I don't know if you've found the same over time. I have. And it always is the case. It's the same with life in general. Anybody kind of looks at the course of their life. If you're having a downside, as long as it's not fatal, like, you know, didn't kill you, you'll probably be better and happier afterwards. The hard part is remembering that when you're in the bad times. Accepting that it is part of life does help you deal with it a little bit. And then the second thing is reaching out to friends and family. Honestly, don't try to go through it alone. I've been through some really tough times. I'm open about it. You know, there were times I had depression. You know, I went through like depressive episodes because things were going really, really badly. I thought I'd fail. I mean, you know, all these kind of things. And then the other times you almost feel manic, like I'm going to start a thousand companies next year. They're all going to be million. I mean, you know, you have both sides of these things and it's part of the journey. Totally agree. I totally agree. Tell me then, what are some of the key milestones or moments that you most remember on this journey to get you here now? Yeah. So the first one. I'll start with the brick and mortar language school that we launched because that's kind of the origin story of all of this. So we had a brick and mortar language school. We bootstrapped it. We had about two, I had about $2,000 in my bank account at the time. So that was the first business we launched. I learned about something called SEO at the time, search engine optimization. And I'm like, Whoa. and I was probably literally the only Spanish school in all of Mexico with a full-time SEO, me on staff. So like, I just did it all day, every day, three months before we launched, we were number one on Google. Like we hadn't even opened our doors yet, but if you look at a Spanish school in Mexico, we, we were number one in the country. So luckily we were fully booked within about 30 days and we used that money to buy furniture and kind of furnish the school and all of that. About a year into it, however, there was a pandemic called the Mexican swine flu that started in Mexico. And wow. during that time, the country was closed off because everybody expected that to be what COVID became decade, decade and a half later. So they closed off Mexico and all of our students were foreigners who came from other countries to come study with us. Suddenly everybody canceled and we didn't have enough savings to last you know, more than a month or two in the school. So we had to come up with the option. It was actually my wife who said, why don't we reach out to our former students who studied with us, loved studying with us. My wife's an amazing teacher. So she gave, had this amazing experience for all the students. We emailed them and see if they want to take classes via Skype. And back, this is like, again, 2008, revolutionary idea. So we emailed, and it wasn't even like an active camp, like none of these like big mailing systems. I literally copied 150 emails at a time into the BCC field, into Google, because that's like the Gmail. That's like the maximum would allow us to have. And I would just email them one at a time. To our surprise, about 10 to 15% of the students said yes. So suddenly we had like 50 students taking Skype lessons with us. I mentioned I'm a computer programmer. I am not a graphic or website designer. Just people like mix these two things up a lot. So my website, I made a website for it. It was called Spanish-Lessons-Online.com. SEO back in the day, you should have the names in the, in the domain. It looked awful. It looked really, really bad. At four pages, just like, you know, about us, a price page and a contact us form. And that was it. And I threw it up and I said, let's see if anybody wants to sign up for this thing. I did basic SEO on it. Not very competitive back then because we didn't have much competitors, right? To our surprise, two things happened. Within 30 days, the swine flu ended. And so the school was fully booked again. And then within 90 days, we were making more off of this dinky four-page website that I built than we were making off of our brick and mortar language school. Wow. Which is not to say a huge amount. Like we weren't like millionaires overnight, but it was like 
I don't know, my brick and mortar, we were bringing in like 5,000 to 10,000 a month, like at the high season. And we were doing that within like 90 days in our online classes. And I'm that like, must oh. have felt pretty amazing. And also you've hinted to what we were talking about before, like something terrible happening. Absolutely. And actually then, I mean, if you still had a physical language school it in 15 years COVID, later, I think. Yeah, like, yeah, right. I, I don't think you'd be having the same story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I didn't have, when we had the brick and mortar language schools, I would work 90 days in a row with no days off in summers because that was our high season. And I would give, we couldn't afford tour guides. I would give the tours on the weekend. So we'd hire a driver and I'd give tours and pretend to be happy. Even when some people were sick on the tour, you have to put a smiley face on there and say, everybody's doing amazing. And I'm, believe it or not, I'm an introvert. So like that was really draining. And then I'd have to go back to work the next day and smile, even when people were complaining at you know, for something because we put them Mexican families and maybe, I don't know, trying to explain 15, 16 years ago what a vegetarian was to like a Mexican family was really hard. You know, like, oh, they don't eat meat. Let's give them chicken. Like, you know, <laughs> that was, you know, then that's how they translate it. So I had, a, you know, you have to put out little fires and I just had to do that. And I did that for three or four years before we ended up selling the brick and mortar schools. And it was very exhausting. I mean, it was exciting. My wife and I were young. We would work 12, 16 hours a day. We'd clean the bathrooms. We'd sleep on the floor of the school because we couldn't afford our own place, all that kind of stuff. But it made us who we are today. So that was obviously a big milestone, right? So going through the the brick and mortars kind of experience and then selling that. And then that allowed you to fully focus on Live Lingua, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, I have ADHD. So fully focus, I will use that word really broadly. There were two periods of full focus when we were doing it. The beginning when we did it and it got up to about mid six figures. And then, you know, you kind of sit back and rest on your laurels. I'm like, this is amazing. And it didn't grow for about two years because I got distracted by a whole bunch of other projects. And then competitors started creeping up. And then I, I went back in there and focused again. And that's what kind of took us up to the next level. When did you sell the, the brick and mortar? 2012, I'm going to say. Don't okay. So we still got a bit time. of time between 2000 and About two years. Two or three years before we sold, yeah, it was a lot, between, lot of burnout. And what about between 2012 and 20, let's call it 2020 until COVID? There was actually, no, there was one bad thing. 2014, Google did, we'd built the company on SEO and Google had an algorithm update. So this wasn't, we were actually, we were not on LiveLingua.com for the first six years. We had LiveLingua.com, it's like this corporate page where, and we had all these Spanish lessons online.com, English lessons online.net, like all these websites. Google did a major algorithm update. I woke up one day and we were gone. You could not find us on Google if you looked for us for a buyer name. And so I had to rebuild the whole company again from the ground up in about 2014. So that's now we, pretty... st we still had students. Our churn rate wasn't 100%. So they kept on paying us and they gave me another six to 12 months. We were also, you know, a smaller organization there where I had one Filipino VA answering emails so our costs were low and everything else was just me and my wife. And then we paid teachers hourly. So if they taught, we paid them, but there was no overhead outside of that. Gave us a decent enough runway for us to build the company back up. And then how did you build the, the company back up? Like that's not easy as well, right? You spent no, no, years was... building up that SEO work. Yeah, I was able to do it. The difference was at the beginning. So I've had other like dips in, you know, financial situations. And the first thing I remember is like, oh, now I'm back to where I was in the beginning. But you never are, right? Because you have different experience. The person I am today is not the person I was 17 years ago when I started off. And for SEO, in that case, I'd been doing it for five or six years already. So what I could do in five or six years, I was actually able to replicate in about two. And so we got back onto the first page within about six to 12 months. Right now, especially when our main focus was, you know, when I sold it was Spanish. So Depending on whether Google's updated in the last week or so, because it seems to be updating every week as we're recording this, we should be number one or two in the world still for a lot of the work. And I was the only full-time SEO that the company ever had, even that's when I was the CEO. A, yeah. That's a pretty uh, remarkable accomplishment either way. So Thanks. first of all, congratulations well, on that. Again, a great testament to your tenacity. 
I'm going to move into more the business of language education, if I may. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we went through some of those milestones, but what aspect of language education, and since we're on the business idea, what aspect of language education from a business or commercial perspective do you think is really underestimated and unappreciated? I'll specifically speak to the niche that I was in, which is human-delivered classes. So I'm not going to be talking to software, is building well, all the rest. Again, I'll give the credit to my wife on this one. When we started, it was just, okay, let's just put people who know how to speak Spanish online so that they could teach stuff. But she was a Spanish teacher, went to college, went to study in the U.S., highly trained, now two decades of experience as a Spanish teacher. She's like, no, that's not what we're doing. We actually need Spanish teachers and language teachers who teach on our platform. Not just people who happen to speak the language and maybe took a... 30-day course that they found online somewhere to do it. Some people who actually are trained to teach. That's what's underestimated. And that's what I see in a lot of other places. Not everybody, but a lot of other pieces go with one of two things when they're doing these online. They go with one, a gimmick. I have this technique that's going to teach you language in 30 days. I'm like, yeah, and I have a technique that's going to give you six-pack abs in 30 minutes a day. Like, I mean, you know, neither one of those things actually work, even though they sell really well. And if you're in this for the money, like, yeah, go down that route. Like that's, nobody's going to actually get results from it, but you're going to make a lot of money. That was not a route that we wanted to do. We made sure that all of our teachers at Live One, well, you know, had college degrees in education or something nearby, at least two or three years of experience. We put them on our own internal training, at least three months trial when they started with us to see how they did with the students. So a lot of like about a quarter didn't even make it through that. That's what's underestimated with live teaching. It's also why I think we'll touch on it later. Within this specific with these live classes, like I don't think AI is going to be as much of a disruption for that component of it. AI is going to be a supplement. It can be used by the teachers to improve things. We're a long way away from a AI replacing actual human being who actually teaches you, you know, listens to you, gets your responses, sees what your weaknesses are, answers, comes with compassion. It's not just here's the grammar, have fun. You know, there's a lot more to teaching than, than that. I recently became a, a business coach and a teacher like earlier this year. And so I honestly, I was in the business marketing side. I didn't get it. And now that I started doing it, I'm like, wow, this is a lot of work. Like, I mean, you know, it's it's not as easy as people think. Just because you know how to do something does not mean you know how to teach it. And that applies to speaking a language. I think that kind of applies to the second question I was going to ask. From a pedagogical perspective, from a learning and teaching perspective, is that the piece that you think is also underestimated then? 100%. Because there is no one system works for everybody. There's no such thing. You can, some people can learn this way. Some people can learn another one. Some people can learn under the same system, but with different teachers, and they would learn at different rates. So one of the key factors is finding the right teacher, not necessarily the right system. I think if you find the right teacher in the wrong system, you'd probably learn better than finding the right system in the wrong teacher as far as whatever your goals are. We're talking about language, we're talking about any education. I think that would be the key, because the teacher can inspire you, the teacher can see the weaknesses, they can kind of cover all that. They can kind of cover the holes, kind of build the base when you're trying to learn a language or learn anything that a system could not. That is usually the key. That was the key to our, a lot of our success. We had students with us for years, which is not to say that they didn't learn the language, but they just stayed on for practice. They, they built these relationships with the teachers. These were their friends. That's a quote from some of the feedback we got, like, these are my friends. So they wanted to get together with their friends once or twice a month. Yes, there was a little bit of money. They exchanged hands while they were doing it. There are multiple stories of people flying to other countries and meeting their teacher in person for lunch for the first time, even though they've been working together for years. That's what really made us happy in doing the business. We weren't in a numbers game. There are plenty of places. There were plenty of places out there with like 5,000 tutors. I'm like, no, we didn't have that. We had, you know, 100. We knew all of our tutors. Our tutors knew all of their students. And that was kind of the relationship that we had. Yeah, it's such a different experience that you can build over that mm -hmm. time. Why is it so important to find people that are teachers? And what makes teachers different to people? <laughs> Let's put it that way. Absolutely. So like anything else in life, teaching is a skill. Maybe there's somebody talented who was born as an innate teacher out there, maybe one in a million people that are out there. But most cases, 
teaching is a skill and there's two parts of the skill. First off is somebody who's had to have taught you the skill. So it's not that you just showed up one day and tried to figure it out. Like, you know, maybe you are if you're in, you're really, really good at it. But most of us, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of Titans and teachers are no different. Learn how to be a teacher from teachers who learn from other teachers who learn from other teachers who learn from, you know, going back 100, 200, 300 years. At least that gives you a starting point. And then the second thing that actually makes a teacher is the experience of having actually having taught, which is why we have the two or three year experience thing, because it's not just you got a college degree and you get out. I'll speak for myself. Like, you know, when I graduated from college, I'm like, I know everything there is to know about business and, you know, computer programming because I'm a computer engineer. First day at work totally dissuaded me of that idea. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing and how any of these things work. Teaching is exactly the same thing. I don't think we give teachers enough respect for what they do. I mean, especially in the United States where I'm from, they get salaries almost as much as like fast food workers. But the, the skill level and the experience necessary to be a good, even better, to be a great teacher is incredible. I think they should be paid like, I'm going to say Norway or Finland, you know, like there they get paid like doctors. I think all teachers deserve to get paid as doctors. I think there's something in that analogy, Ray. I don't know. I think you would understand it even better than me, but there's something about, and particularly when you put generative AI on that, generative AI can maybe even come up with some of the good ideas and the good teaching things because it can train itself on all of education. Mm -hmm. But there's something in the same way that when you go to a doctor, you don't have the same experience. And yeah. also there's something about the doctor, the way they go through things that makes you feel comforted and exactly. like you're now ready to be treated in the doctor's case. And likewise, you're ready to be educated or learn something in the teacher's case. And I wonder if you can kind of dig into that better than me. Yeah. So you bring up a good point. Look, I'll look at generative AI, at least the way it is right now. Incredible tool. Obviously, I have ChatGPT. It's like on my one of my tabs that are open all the time. I use it all the time. But when it comes to teaching, that would be like having a really good textbook. Let's just say you had this amazing textbook that happened to be have all the information exactly the way you wanted, ordered in exactly the way that works for you. That's ChatGPT. It'll, it'll spit it out or any open any kind of AI software will spit it out in the order with enough language learning model behind it. If it knows who you are, it'll actually spit it up in the perfect order for you. I would challenge anybody to have the perfect AI generated language French course. Take it for six months and speak French. Even if there was like an audio component to it, 99.999% of people would not speak French at the end of having this generated AI course. Because a lot of learning languages and otherwise is experience-based as well. It's the interaction you're having with somebody, the memories you're creating with somebody. That's what kind of causes the wirings in your brain to start firing. And you actually remember what to say. If somebody says, you know, como ça va, you can say, you know, ça va bien. And that's all I remember from like 12 years of French class in school. That's it. But like that wire was done because of the interactions that I had. I could have read that in a book a hundred times and I would not have gotten it. You can read it on AI a hundred times. You can listen to it on AI generated audios a hundred times. It's even going to the non-AI. If you're looking at it this way, like Pimsleur, the audios that are there, I'll throw Rosetta Stone under the bus because everybody else does. Look, I know you watch the commercials. They have a lot of money and there's somebody speaking fluent, whatever, at the end of using Rosetta Stone. I've never met those people in my life, you know, and I've gone to like language learning conferences, like somebody who's like, I only use Rosetta Stone and that's why I'm fluent at the language. No. And those were kind of close to like generative in the sense that like, you know, they've customized it based on what you're learning and what you got wrong on the questions and all the rest of it. But you can't learn because there was no real experience that came out of it. I mean, even at best, they're personalized, right? They're still predetermined little boxes That's that they put you in. I, I totally agree on the, the teacher aspect. Now, I'm also kind of, one of the things I love about these conversations is we kind of have to make something explicit on mm -hmm. something that we know intrinsically. And I feel that one of those things is the way that you're talking about there, that the teacher is like, first of all, we are an algorithm in ourselves. Like we're the perfect computer. We're we're a teacher computer mm. uh, if we're really good at it. And what we're really good at is we're able to pick up the subtle cues of humans. Mm. And there's always something that 
kind of if you left it to just a straight program, particularly let's call it a, this magic textbook kind of idea, it it doesn't know if you're feeling sick. It doesn't know if you're feeling okay. If you just need you know a little smile and and somebody to ask you how you're going and a, a sense of and I feel like this is a very human characteristic. I can only feel proud when a human tells me, "Hey, that was a good that you you nailed that." If the if a computer program does the same to me, it just doesn't elicit the same response. If Duolingo gives you another star because you finish your exercises today, it's like yeah, there's something about completion, but it's not. You're like it's like it's in a different level as far as what it's you know the dopamine it sets off in your brain is not even close to when somebody says it. It means it like somebody you respect, somebody you believe actually says these things. It's a totally different reaction that you would have. Even maybe if we put it into the example of if you had the teacher literally script for script say exactly the same thing as whatever the AI would do for you, the response I think would be totally different. Absolutely. And I still am unsure that the churn rate is going to be that much better for a, like a totally machine powered experience compared to a human powered experience for the same reason that teaching and learning, particularly learning is really hard Absolutely. and it takes so long and there's just so many opportunities for you to go, you know what? I'm done. And a teacher can figure out when you're close to that, when you're just at that cusp and just bring you back. That's what a Absolutely. good teacher does on top of being excellent at what they do in terms of communicating things and coming up with different ways, again, coming up with the right ways that suit you. So I really sort of see where, where you're coming from with this. And mm -hmm. I actually might jump on this question for you, Ray, is, okay, but now you're managing humans <laughs> and humans uh -huh. don't interact like robots either so it comes up with the the sense of oh okay yeah i get all the wonderful warm friendly stuff but then i also get the the difficult stuff that comes with humans and how does that work when you're you know you still have a pretty large business that you're running with a lot of humans mm -hmm. which is not an it was an organizational feed in itself tell me about that in a lot of businesses, I jokingly say, you know, the perfect business is one where I didn't have any customers or any staff, but any business I could figure out where I, that was it, like amazing. It would run perfectly all, all day long, right? Unfortunately, that doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't matter even if you're a, like a SaaS company, a software company, you have customers and you need staff that you work with. One of the things, and this is not something right at the beginning, but it's what I learned after many years of running this business and other ones as well, is making sure like the mission, vision, and values of the company are really well established. I have my own version. I don't use values. I use something called guardrail questions, but the concept is the same. The reason is once you know that, especially once you get to a certain size, because we had over about you know, 100, 150 people working for us at the end, you hire based on these, you train based on these. And if you do that right, 99% of the time, people know where they're moving and everybody's moving in the same direction. So it makes the managing and the human issues a lot easier on the staffing side, but you also apply that, you know, the, your mission, vision, and values should be applied to the customers as well. And that means you bring in the right kind of customers that are for the right kind of teachers. And then you're all moving in the same direction. It reduces a lot of the conflict that you're going to have in your company. Eliminating, absolutely not. No, but staff issues and even student issues were not something we spent very much time on when we were doing it like once every month, two months, maybe there was a student who had an issue. Like a significant one other than, oh, I missed my class or, I mean, you know, like little administrative things would happen or I forgot that the daylight savings time was happening or something like that. But major issues, we'd give refunds once every three months, four months, we'd have a refund and half the time it was because of some kind of life circumstance that they had. Like, I'm, you know, I'm sick. I lost my job. I can't afford this anymore. Can I get my money back? We're like, of course. I'm like, we're not going to take your money, even though our refund policy might strictly, we had a refund policy, but I think we never enforced it. It was just there in case somebody tried to abuse it. 
But look, if you lost your job, here's your money back. What the class is going to take. We're not going to take that from you. We had at least one person come to us that said diagnosed with cancer. I'm like, of course, here you go. I'm like, there's no questions asked. But they didn't even have to come to me as the CEO to get that approved because they knew that within our values, that's what we do. And they even to somebody on just the frontline customer support, I with these guardrail questions, you ask the questions yourself. And if you answer yes to all of them, don't even go to your boss to ask because whatever you're going to do is in line with whatever our company values are. And you don't need to check. You don't need to, it doesn't have to be in the SOP anymore. Just keep that up and you can do it. And that got rid of a lot of like administrative headaches for us. So then let's take it to that other extreme then. So I think we, we actually talked a little bit about generative AI, where that's going. So then let's go up that level again. So mm -hmm. not just talking about a technological level, let's just look at the language sector in general. It's safe to say that the online language sector is, is growing faster than the in-person. If mm -hmm. the in-person is growing, it's more of a rebound and trying to get back to where, where they were. Mm -hmm. But tell me about that, your kind of views or musings about the language sector more in general. There will come a day probably where that will have a big impact on the language teaching sector, because there are generally two types of people who want to learn languages. Those who want to do it for like self-improvement and learning about another culture, which is a small, I'd say 20% and 80% is just like a practical thing. I'm going over there. I need to learn enough of this language. I'm being sent for work. I need to be able to talk to coworkers, all of that. That part, unfortunately, I think when AI gets to the level that we can just kind of auto-translate for people, that part of the sector is going to die. There's still going to be language teachers out there. There's going to be still, still going to be language businesses out there. They just won't be as big as they are right now when we get to that. The successful language teaching businesses are those who are going to make, make the transition into the whatever hardware that does the translation because we're able to collect a lot more data than most other companies are, right? Because we have hundreds, if not thousands of classes happening every single month. We're able to collect that really quickly. That is a race at the top. That's not something that, you know, I was, we would have been able to compete in. There are companies out there with tens of millions of dollars and you pick your battles. If I'm launching an online store, I'm not going to go up against Amazon, right? I you find a niche, try to own that niche and just do it really, really well while you're in there. And that was kind of our model since we just, I did not want to have a boss, which is why we never went after like BC money. You know, we got approached all the time before this current economic crash, obviously nobody's approaching anybody these days. But you know, before that, every month or two, I'd get some kind of private equity or VC firm was like, hey, do you want an investor? Do you want an investor? Because we were known. And we were known that everybody knew we didn't, nobody had it. So there's like no dilution. But going forward, it's going to be the same thing that happened in a lot of industries. They're going to use Amazon. One big player is going to end up dominating that and owning the space. And it'll be a shame. That being said, I think we're probably 10 to 20 years from that. Is this not only a software, it's also a hardware thing, for better or worse. I'm probably not going to be this in this industry in about two decades. So, you know, it's a little callous to say, but for a lot of people listening to it, this is probably not an issue they have to worry about. Yeah, I, th I think it'll be interesting. I, I think you might be, certainly in terms of non-essential languages, it becomes more of a problem when there's instant translation. But saying that though, even in the translation businesses have changed and are still very prosperous. And I think there's still an aspect of humans being humans and trust being trust and people that's want to learn 30 a certain way. That's the 30% that I'm saying. That's, I mean, that's never going to go anywhere. Like there are certain yeah. people who are learning languages for reasons other than just the straight up, I need to be able to talk to this person and order something yeah. in my restaurant that are going to continue to learn languages for self improvement It'll become, a, if anything, it's going to be a self-improvement thing. It'd be like going to the gym is when you're already healthy. You know, mm -hmm. you might be healthy. I want to stay healthy. So that's why I go to the gym. Your mind is sharp. I want to keep it sharp, learn a language, which, you know, studies show that it reduces chances of dementia and Alzheimer's when you're old and when you at least speak two, two or three languages. There are medical benefits for doing it. Unfortunately, I think a vast majority of people who learn languages, that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it for very practical reasons. And for a lot of that, it's just not going to be necessary anymore. You can have, you know, for an emergency, like in medical hospitals, you need a translator. You're not going to be, but you you would use a medical, you would use like an auto one of the translators. Sometimes hospitals, they only have two of them. There's a lot of emergencies. 
Yeah. This fallback. This is better than not being able to communicate with the patients in whatever their native language is. So that's where things will kind of die out a little bit. Yeah. So you've also got, I guess, low stakes, high stakes scenarios. And then you've got, mm -hmm. does it, does cost change the dynamic? Does the standard need to all raise because the minimum bar of speaking is, is so high in order to be more effective than the alternative of, mm -hmm. you know, and auto translate. So there's, I think there's some interesting things here and, and ones that we're going to figure out. But when you were talking, you mentioned, you know, talking about find a niche and own that. In fact, you did that with your at least with your SEO in terms of moving mm -hmm. to Spanish, because you were broader, I think, you know, live lingua isn't like- We actually still had Spanish. other languages, yes, but what we had to do to compete was mm -hmm. we had to focus on one of them, which was already like a 50% of our business was Spanish anyway. It is the most, I mean, English is the most yeah. in-demand language, but we had a Spanish version website. That's where we got a lot of the English ones from. But, you know, if you don't speak English, you're not going to an English language website. So there's, you know, this chicken and the egg issue there. But Spanish was by far the biggest part of our business. And it was one of those decisions we have to make on a business side. So we still teach. Yeah. If you go there, you can still see French and German mm -hmm. and all that. We still do teach it, but smaller parts of our business because, again, our competitors have so much. Yeah. And we can't compete with that amount of money. What we do, and you'll also notice that at LiveLingua, our prices, we stopped racing to the bottom when we started racing to the top. So we were like, let's give the highest quality we can give. So we kind of moved into a model that was more like a university. We actually had student advisors you could go to if you had, you know, like at a university where you wanted to change your curriculum, you want to change teachers, you could actually change with us. And it's not like in other systems where you have to just go and find another tutor and the, new, the other tutor's like, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, that might even be a curriculum, but like it's, there's no communication. Like all of our teachers know and they talk. We moved into having full-time teachers instead of like an hourly rate. So they actually are on our team and on our staff. Yeah. Um, while they're there, takes up our overhead, but that also gives us much more control on the quality. People work for certain hours every day. It's not whenever you're free, go and do that kind of thing. So we had to, by necessity of the industry, move in that direction, but it actually aligned with our mission and our values anyway, which is kind of be more the high quality one instead of the numbers one. We never wanted to be the, the biggest language school as far as teachers and students are concerned. We wanted to be the language school where you actually learn the language. In fact, and so I think towards the end, we, had, we were one of the first ones that actually guaranteed you would. We had special programs where if you paid for it, we'd guarantee you'd get at least, I think, high Bs, if not a low C level in your language in a year. You obviously had to put in the work. It wasn't like you pay us and magically in 12 months, you're going to know it. You actually have to take class every month. But if you didn't, we'd give you your money back. Like we were the only language, we are still the only language school, I believe, that kind of gives that kind of guarantee because we believe in our teachers so much. It shows kind of a uh, commitment to professionalism and, and also backing that professionalism. Out of curiosity, how many hours a week were you requiring somebody to be learning in order to make that kind of? Usually, uh, it was, I believe, a minimum of two hours a week. Yeah. Minimum of two hours yeah. a week. We'd recommend three if you really wanted to, to hit it, but minimum average of two hours a week. Obviously, you take a vacation for a week, but then you have to make it up in the other weeks. It's not, you can't skip that. But minimum two hours a week to see the progress. And teachers yeah. will recommend to you. If you're not on track, like, look, you're taking us a little longer. For that one specifically, it was an unlimited program. Like you just paid for the year and it was all these classes you want. So it wouldn't cost you more to take three or four than it would take one or two. But we, the teacher's job is to keep you on track. The student advisor's job is to keep you on track and say, okay, you're not quite where you should be right now. How about we take up the classes for a few weeks just to get you back on track? And then you can, we can go back to two. So some people took more, some people, very few people took less. But, uh, you know, some people took more. And you have to put in the work. It's not only the classes. And I'll speak for myself. You know, I had two hours of French classes a week for in European school for most of my life. And I don't speak French because I would leave that class and never use the word French again for the rest of the week. So, like, you know, this is for serious students. The price tag was kind of on the higher side. Is I mean, you know, it's still 
I say it was just because I don't own it anymore, but you know, it, it still is on the higher side. But if you really want to do it, it, it's the commitment. You have to put the commitment financially and the commitment of time. It's you have to put in the work. There's nothing we can do to, you know, AI is not the point where, you know, you don't just take a pill and suddenly know something, right? It's you have to put the work in. I really agree. It does show how long it can take to learn a language, right? Because now mm -hmm. we're talking, okay, I'm learning a level once a year, which is actually probably not unrealistic if people are just wanting to do in a way, I wouldn't even call it, if you, if that's why people learn it so fast when they're younger, right? Because they can devote so many more hours to it on top. That's of actually a little bit of a deception though, because, you know, okay, yeah. I have a three-year-old right now and I know Alex, yeah. you have little ones as well. Yeah. When do they start talking like an adult? Takes a while, right? Yeah, it's not they still going, by the way. Yeah, I know. Life might four, and it's he still yeah. doesn't talk like an adult. So the whole misnomer, like kids, just learn it like that. No, the first time we learned to speak, we were probably around five or six. So it took us five or six years the first time. Now the second language, just I've seen that happen. You can move a kid to another place, and it's three, six, three to six months, maybe a year. They do it, but that is total immersion. So if you took the hours and what total immersion applies, like literally every waking hour, they're, they're in a school that they teach, their, their neighbor's kids, they're speaking, turn on the TV, that's what they're speaking. They're not studying an hour twice a week. They are studying 12 to 14 hours a day for six months. And then because they're kids, they go out and practice it because they're not embarrassed to make mistakes. And yes, then they pick it up quickly. I strongly believe adults can do the same thing. If you're willing to put yourself in a situation, when I was in the Peace Corps, I was in my late 20s and I learned Spanish in three months. It was because that what they did, and this is the methodology we did at Live Lingua, they bring you here, they put you with a Mexican family where they don't speak a lick of English, and they made me do six hours a day of classes, and I had to discipline myself that I would keep speaking Spanish even when I was outside of it. On the, I would rest on the weekends because my mind would feel like it was like about to explode. I'm like, I need to speak English, you know, with the Americans around me. But I would spend 50, 60 hours a week studying Spanish. In the three months, I was conversationally fluent. Sure, I made tons of mistakes. And I, I mean, to this day, I get genders wrong when I'm trying to use the prepositions and stuff like that. But I was conversationally fluent in three months. That's the level it takes. But if you put the hours together, I mean, I put in hundreds and hundreds of hours to get there in those three months. It wasn't, it, that wasn't a shortcut per se. I just batched everything into a very short period of time in order to get there. What are some of the kind of, I guess, habits that you've sort of built? I mean, we've talked about language habits, but you're also a very accomplished business person. What are the business habits or mindset that you've had to kind of develop over the years to, to get to where you've got to? And, and I also just want to acknowledge your coaching work. And it's going to be interesting. You probably had to do your own self-reflection on this. So I'm very curious. Mm -hmm. I got diagnosed about three or four years ago with ADHD and my wife jokes with me because I've been married to her for 18 years. It's like, why'd you get diagnosed? I could have told you that like 18 years ago. Like, you know, it's like blatantly obvious, but I give a lot of credit. So I practice and teach. In fact, a few hours after this, I'm going to go and teach some class on martial art as well. And martial arts are all about discipline and repetition. So you kind of do the same thing for like 20, you know, you practice the same punch for 50 years kind of thing, depending on the martial art you're in. And I applied that to my life. If you look at my calendar, every single week, it looks very eerily similar in a, in a way that some people might consider boring. I could tell you what I'm doing on almost any time of any day of the week, Monday through Friday. On the weekends, I actually don't plan anything because that, again, let the mind rest and whatever, let serendipity happen on the weekends. But Monday through Friday, my, my day looks patently boring to everybody out there because I wake up every day and I do exactly the same thing. And hopefully more days than not, it leads to a step forward. Some days I wake up and I take 20 steps back and then I get up and I stay 20 days to get back to where I was a month ago. And then I keep on moving forward. And I just did that for a really long time. I'm going on two decades doing that. That's how I've been able to do it. I joke with if I if I ever write a book on entrepreneurship and I do hope to start writing next year, the title is going to be seven years to seven figures and nobody's going to buy it because nobody wants to hear that, right? They all want the 30 days for a million dollar launch. 
Nobody wants to hear that. But most entrepreneurs I've spoken to who have like serious businesses that are get to the seven figure point or beyond, they talk about the first two or three years just scraping by. Then one thing happens, takes them to the next level, but it doesn't quite work out. So they got two or three more years stuck in another plateau. Another thing breaks through and eventually they make it to seven figures. And just for people who are aspiring entrepreneurs out there, seven figure business does not make you rich. Trust me. Like, you know, it's not like you're taking home a million dollars a year. Like the business is making that. You have profit, you have expense, you reinvest most of it back in your business anyway. So you might be comfortable, but you're not. There's no Ferraris in your future. If you own all your business is a million dollars, you're, you know, you're not driving around multiple Ferraris in your garage. So when I see those ads, like be a millionaire, the guy standing in front of a private jet, I'm like, yeah, that's not a millionaire. Millionaire is not flying around anywhere in private jet. They might splurge on a business class flight once every three years. Like that's, that's the maximum that they're, but they fly economy most of the time, you know? So just a little bit of a mindset thing there that you have people want to have to change if they want to get into entrepreneurship. So that seems, I think that's a really healthy way to, to start to think about it from an entrepreneur perspective. And then what would you say to more just people that are in language businesses that have been doing this for more than seven years or their business has been around for more than seven years? What would you be encouraging them to think about at this point? Okay, so when I coach people, I actually do what I call a kind of a holistic coaching. So I might coach them on business, but I, and what I do is I ask, where are you now? And then we do an exercise to find out where you want to be in nine years. So I do based on seasons of your life. So it's not, where do you want to be at the end of your life? Who knows? If you're 25, don't, that's kind of silly question to ask anybody where they want to be at the end of their life. So nine years, it's a decade or so. It's a, it's a good idea. And if you are, you know, if you have a language business right now and it's either going well or maybe not going as well as you'd hoped, I kind of encourage people to do that exercise because one, there's more to life than business. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we sometimes think that there isn't because we're like, it's all encapsulating, but there's more to life than business. It's, it can be revealing to see really where you want to be because sometimes I do the exercise and people say, I want to have $10 million in the bank. And then you ask them why? Well, it's because, you know, I want to make $10,000 a month on passive income. Like, you know, mathematically, you only need like $1.5 million to make 10,000, you know, invested in 7%. You're already there. Like you don't need 10 million. But when people, nobody really thinks about it. If you ask most people out there in the world, where do you want to be in nine years? I think 80, 90% would have no idea. 9% of those would have a vague idea. And very few would actually have concrete numbers. And like, I want to be here. I want to be doing this. I want my family to be doing, they're doing this. I want to be happily married with two kids. My kids are healthy and they're going to school. And then third, I mean, all of that. I want to stay fit and run. I mean, all of this stuff. Most people don't. So I don't, I think that's, it's not, it's a, you know, is that a cause or an effect? I think it's, it's a result of knowing that, that they get there, not because they're rich. Do they start doing those kind of things? I think that's a very good point for us to finish up today, Ray. I'm really going to be thinking about those questions and what a, <laughs> what a great place to, to finish. Thank you so much for your time today, Ray. Before we do finish, is there anything you'd like to bring our listeners attention to or, and even just where, where you see your future nine years from now okay a little past nine years i want to be a science fiction fantasy writer writing the next game of thrones but that's not this season of my life it's like the season of the life after i finish this i'm working on two things for the next nine years i've kind of really enjoyed the coaching so i do two types of coaching i do executive business coaching in an area that i call productized education so i primarily work with education businesses not necessarily always in the language field but education businesses where they're actually humans teaching it so it's also not online courses or anything, or like SaaS companies that do software. I work with businesses that do that. So I'm working with like a financial education business now and coaching. And another one that does this, it's a software education business as well. And another college admissions uh, business. So I'm doing that. And then on the other side is this other program that I talked about with that. I'm, I'm calling it the nine-year letter. And I'm actually working for people through that as well. I've done about 15 people. It's not public yet, but it, it will be hopefully soon, because I believe a lot of people can live happier lives so that they actually know where they want to go. I think people can be a happier life. So that's 
education, but it's also, it's a business, but not a business kind of thing that I'm going to be doing on there. So if you want to find out more about either one of those things, you can go to my personal website, rayblakeney.com, R-A-Y-B-L-A-K-N-E-Y.com. That's for my personal coaching and personal stuff. And if you'd like, you can also, and that also shows all the other businesses I'm working on. So uh, I won't list them all off here. And then if you want to go for the nine-year letter, it's nineyearletter.com, but the number nine. So number nine, yearletter.com. Ray, thanks again. And if you are listening in here, please make sure that you hit subscribe and we'll see you on the next Language Leaders live episode. Thanks again. Bye now.